Christ has risen. Millions of Christians proclaiming those words in churches worldwide. Easter looked more normal this year. Family gatherings more common. Travel on the uptick. One thing, though, hasn't changed. Easter candy. According to one survey, over 90% of Americans were planning to eat chocolate at Easter. And holiday candy is big in the rest of the Western world, too. In 2021, even as COVID raged, the confection industry made $4 billion in sales. They expected even more this year, as family gatherings were larger. Everything from jelly beans to marshmallow candy has been flying off the shelves. There's nothing wrong with eating and enjoying candy, of course. It's a sweet treat, especially gathered with friends and family after maybe two years apart. But the greatest blessing is not a treat. It's the salvation we enjoy. Because Jesus didn't just die for us. He rose from the dead for us. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris sharing the great story that's all about Jesus. We're starting a new series called The Empty Tomb. And I hope you had a delightful time with family this past weekend. I hope you were with God's people over the weekend. And on this Easter Monday, we're going to spend some time with one of the foremost experts on the resurrection of Jesus. His name is Dr. N.T. Wright. And while I don't agree with him on everything he teaches, no one defends the resurrection like the former Bishop of Durham. I want you to hear an interview I did with him several years ago that is very important for our Christian faith. I want to send you a copy of his Resurrection DVD for your gifts of support to this ministry. It was shot on location in Israel, Greece, and England. It traces the historical roots of the Resurrection in Scripture and history. It'll encourage your faith. It will help your family and friends who may not believe to see there is real evidence that Christ did indeed rise again. Our number to call after the program is 800 65 Haven, 865 Haven, or visit our website. Make your gift there at haventoday.org. Haventoday.org. And now let's open it with a song that imagines the very moment Christ's body went from death to life. Andrew Peterson opens our program with His Heart Beats.
I'm Charles Morris, and I want to welcome to the program N.T. Wright. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you. My pleasure. Time magazine said that of all Christian scholars, you are the one conservative out there that speaks for the resurrection and actually believes it happened. Some people think you're the expert on the resurrection. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that there was a television special about uh, the supposed discovery of the tomb and remains of Jesus and some of his family members. And the statement was made then that the bones don't matter to our faith because Jesus was raised spiritually, not physically. Do the bones matter? Yes, of course the bones matter because the God in whom we believe is the creator God who has promised to recreate the world. And the key thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that it's the turning point where creation turns into new creation. And you don't leave the good creation behind, it gets transformed. Now, if you have a theology which says that the body of Jesus stayed in the tomb and he went off somewhere else in a spiritual form, a so-called spiritual form, um, then you have a theology which says that the present world doesn't matter, that it was not a terribly good thing that God made it, and that really our destiny is to leave this physical world behind and go somewhere else. Now, the New Testament is quite clear that physicality matters. God made it, God loves it, God will redeem it. It is at present heading for death because of sin and corruption and so on, but God is going to make it incorrupt. Now, that mm -hmm. is hugely important. One footnote on that, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that the body is sown in one sort of body and raised as another sort of body. Some translations, like the RSV and the NRSV, translate that as, as it, is, it is sown a, a, a physical body and raised a spiritual body. That is simply a bad translation. Mm. The word Paul uses for physical doesn't mean what we mean by physical. It means something that is animated by an ordinary human soul. And the word he uses for spiritual doesn't mean spiritual as opposed to physical. It means something which is animated by God's spirit. It is, in other words, uh, for our, from our point of view, a physical body, but it is going to be animated by God's spirit, and therefore it won't be able to suffer or die anymore. Mm. Let's uh, move that a little bit into church history. What was the significance of the resurrection uh, to the growth of the early church? As far as the early church were concerned, the resurrection meant that God's new creation had begun, and the project thus launched had to be taken forward. It wasn't, in other words, a very odd thing that God had done to rescue Jesus, and God might do very odd things for us if we were lucky enough, sort of thing. It was about, here is a new 
moment in human history, cosmic history, that has happened. A shockwave has gone through the whole world. Paul says the gospel has already been preached to every nation under heaven, and I, Paul, became its minister. In other words, this news has gone out into all the world, and we now have to turn that news into speech. Mm. Well, I guess we could get on the theological side of this a little bit, and we'll make it more the practical, but when God raised Jesus from the dead, was he making a statement about Jesus? There is certainly a statement about Jesus, yes, according to Paul in Romans 1, 4. Uh, the resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus really is and was and would be his son. Um, in other words, that was kind of secret or hidden before. The resurrection says, look, he really was my son all along, which then plays back and means, my goodness, that means that when this figure, Jesus, died, this was the son of God that died. Mm-hmm. And that then drives all sorts of bits of Paul's understanding of who Jesus is. So yes, it is a statement about Jesus. It's also a statement about the long purposes of God for creation and for Israel. They have come to fruition in the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. Now, was he also making a statement about us and those of us who put our faith in him? Yes, he was. He was making a statement uh, that, that anyone now who is, as it were, attached to or belongs to this Jesus is themselves going to be, or are themselves going to be vindicated, raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of justification, after mm-hmm. all, that, mm-hmm. that because God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says he was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, God is passing a verdict on Jesus, saying, yes, he's my son. And when we belong to Jesus, Paul says in Romans 6, God says that same verdict about us. You have died to sin. You have been raised to new life. Mm. How did the resurrection become so important to you? You've been an academic all your life, but I've heard you speak enough and I've seen you interact with others. You're also, you believe in prayer. Uh, You believe in the need for Christ to be living in someone. How did the resurrection, did something click in your life? Did something happen? Uh, Did you go to Africa on a trip? And and what happened to you? (laughs) I grew up as a very ordinary middle-class Christian in a very ordinary bit of Northern England. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the people I was with all at least said they believed in the resurrection. And at each point when I uh, examined that and thought about it, um, I was in the happy position of actually being given um, interesting books to read or whatever, which helped me understand what that could mean and helped me understand how I could believe it. Uh, I I grew up in a, in a, a family that was a praying family, not a particularly... Um, noisily devout family but just a typical old fashioned Anglican family who basically believed that stuff, went to church, read their Bibles, Mm -hmm. tried to live as God would have us live in an undemonstrative unshowy sort of way one key thing for me was somebody when I was 18 told me I should read C.S. Lewis's book Miracles, Mm. now that was because I was going to go off to university and study philosophy and theology and so on and what Lewis does in Miracles which a lot of actually Christian apologists have not really done is that he sees the strangeness of the resurrection stories in the New Testament. And so that it isn't just a matter of saying, we can prove that Jesus must have been raised from the dead, bang, A plus B plus C, there you've got the Mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. He was saying, something very peculiar is going on here, which is like nothing else that has ever happened before. This is nothing other than new creation. I remember after I'd read that, I remember hearing good evangelical sermons saying things like, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting there thinking, that's true, but that is the truth of the day of Pentecost, not the truth of Easter Day. Easter Day is something that happens to Jesus. Now, what happens to me is a result of that, but it's not equated with that. Mm -hmm. And then for many years, I was working on other things and was just sitting there with that theological position. I always believed the resurrection, but it's only in the last 10 years or so that I started researching more particularly what lots of other scholars had said about it. So I came out to the big book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. 
God, in which I've examined pretty well all the arguments um, that I could find about the nature of the resurrection and come back with that very solid, I hope, affirmation of the truth of the bodily resurrection. And then more recently, I did some more work in where that impinges on our worldview about how we look at the whole future, the second coming, the new world, resurrection, etc., and how that impinges on our mission today. Mm -hmm. And that's the newest book, which is called Surprised by Hope, which is just as. And that is a hat tip to C.S. Lewis. I mean, and and fair enough, because... Surprised by joy, uh, Credit credit where credit is due. Sure. Um, But I've tried to explore that. So for me, it's been something that's grown gradually over the years that I've always basically believed, but I've had to keep on coming back and putting another coat of paint on as new questions have been asked. Mm. What's the connection between the resurrection and the death of Jesus on the cross? The resurrection shows that the crucifixion of Jesus was a victory, not a defeat. Anyone looking at the crucifixion on Good Friday without knowing what was coming next would think, oh, well, he was just another messianic pretender, and the Romans did to him what they do to all other messianic pretenders. The fact of the resurrection forces the very, very early church from the beginning to say... We have to think our way back through all that happened and realize that his death was actually what God had planned all mm. along. We mm. see it in Luke's gospel. That wasn't an afterthought the then? Wasn't, no, of course it wasn't an afterthought. No, absolutely. So it works both ways because then you think forward from the ministry of Jesus. How is the kingdom which he is talking about going to come about? It can only come about by the powers of evil being defeated. And the mm. powers of evil are the powers which are opposed to the goodness of God's creation. Jesus takes their full force on himself in the cross Mm. and if nothing then happens then it means that nothing then has happened but if he is raised from the dead it kind of retrospectively validates the whole kingdom project that he was always about you've you've actually talked a little bit about gnosticism you've written some about gnosticism there's a happy ending here isn't there in a physical sort of resurrection it isn't a happy ending it's a happy beginning one well, of the odd good. things yes. one of the odd things about the gospel resurrection narratives is that they don't basically say there it is so we all lived happily ever after right. it's oh my goodness a new world has begun And now we've got to scratch our heads and pray for the Spirit and see what we're supposed to do in this new world, which is very scary. Mm, mm. You've written, I know, and and said that the one place where we can see and touch the new heavens and the new earth is the resurrected body of Jesus, haven't you? I'm not sure if I put it quite like that, because I don't know what it would mean to touch the resurrection body of Jesus for you or me. Mm -hmm. Um, But Jesus certainly invites Thomas to touch and uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and the disciples in the upper room and on the Mount of Olives mm-hmm. at the Ascension, mm-hmm. they certainly saw Jesus and knew that he was as real as you and me and, in fact, a lot more so. Um, so, yes, the key thing about the resurrection is that God has promised to renew the whole world at the end and that he's done that in the middle of history in the case of Jesus. The, the, the risen body of Jesus is the first little bit of new creation. That's why Paul says Christ is raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. It's uh, biblical. I've heard you use this at the end of John, uh, and, and you're known as a Greek scholar. Tell me the charcoal fire story. Oh, well, when Peter denied Jesus on the night Jesus was betrayed, In John's Gospel, it says that it was a chilly night and Peter was in the high priest's courtyard and there was a charcoal fire burning there in the hearth. And the word for charcoal fire is anthracia. We have a type of coal in England called anthracite, which is a sort of charcoal which people burn. It has a particular smell. The only other time in the New Testament that that word anthracia gets used is when the disciples, some of them, are going fishing in John 21, Mm -hmm. and Jesus is standing on the shore cooking breakfast and he beckons to them and they fish and they catch and they come in. 
there he is, and the charcoal fire is burning. And now John doesn't say, and they all smelt it. I mean, he's much too no, good a writer. No, that's right. You ha- like a good novel, you have to make those connections for yourself. But it's obvious what he's doing. Yes. And, and, and because immediately afterwards, Jesus appears to take Peter on one side, and he asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Corresponding brilliantly to the three denials that Peter has made. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can see and feel the human drama there. It's one of the most intense emotional... And, and the, the, the word and, for know, love is, is well, brought in there too. The, the word for love is extraordinary because people have puzzled about this. John, when he says that Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He uses the great love word, agape. Mm-hmm. Simon, son of John, agapis me. Do you love me with that agape, that total self-giving, self-devoted love? And Peter can't bring himself to say it. And he says a, a softer word, um, you know that I, I'm your friend. I, I'm with you. I, I'm on your side, as it were. But Peter can't seem to get the agape thing yet. He's not up to that. And then it happens again, second time. And then the third time, Jesus comes down to his level. Simon, son of John, Phyllis me, are you my friend? Mm, mm. And it says, Peter was sad that he said on this third occasion, are you my friend? Lord, you know everything, you know I'm your friend. Um, but it seems to me that's a wonderful thing there. Jesus is saying, okay, Peter, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, I was speaking about this the other day, and a pastor who was in the congregation came up and said to me, um, he said, that was wonderful to me he said because sometimes i think you know i'm not really up for where i should be with god and the thought that jesus comes and says well this is where you are this is where we'll start is mm. is hugely encouraging mm. Mm. when you think about a verse like let's take second peter three thirteen, uh, but in keeping with his promise we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth a home of righteousness what do you envision when you read that verse in the new testament it's a tricky thing because imagination is quite difficult for us. The arts help us to imagine things, music, drama, whatever. But actually, so much of our Western cultural life for the last 200 years has been conditioned by the sort of enlightenment scientism, not science, but scientism, which says that really all you can imagine is the way the world is. It's full of entropy, it's running down, mm-hmm. eventually it'll burn out or chill out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thought that it might be renewable into a new form is very, very difficult for us to imagine. One way I get at it is like this. You know, if somebody's been very sick, actually a friend of mine is very sick in hospital right now as I'm recording this, I'm praying for him regularly, and the last time I saw him, he had lost a lot of weight, and I have to say he was just a shadow of his former self, and it's very sad. The thing about the resurrection and then extrapolating out into the new creation is that if you are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, you are just a shadow of your future self. Mm. Now, if that's true of you or me, because we are in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, what's it like for the whole creation? Mm. That this wonderful creation, full of life and sunlight and trees and birds and flowers and power of water and air and so on. Now, imagine that flooded with the new life of God's new creation, the power which raised Jesus from the dead. The sad thing is, to be honest, all this is there in the Bible. It's there at the end of Revelation. It's there in Romans 8. It's there in many places, Isaiah 11. And many Christians have allowed their imagination to be shrunk back from actually appreciating that promise. And so they've said, well, it's a pity we're going to leave this world behind and go and sit on a cloud and play a harp forever and ever and ever. They'd like to be doing something that might be exciting. Exactly, exactly. And while our likes will no doubt be themselves transformed and what we want to do may look very different in the new world the new world will be more 
like would be like this one only more so as mm. it were more mm. rich mm. more full more vibrant and uh, that's music helps me get there because you know whatever you're doing music will enhance it as it were sure. and and it's as though the music will T.S. Eliot has that lovely line you are the music while the music lasts mm-hmm. a sort of mm-hmm. sense of inhabited by a fresh spirit that's that's the thing to look forward to there's a there, there's a word it's 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 in their english bibles a groaning this groaning of the creation plus in in, in romans 8 the groaning yeah, of the yeah. spirit too the praying yeah. of, of the spirit what is that groaning about well and you've missed out the one in the middle which is All the right. groaning of the church it's a triple groaning okay um paul says the whole creation is groaning in travel and you know we talk about nature red in tooth and claw mm-hmm. and we look at earthquakes and tsunamis and things and we shudder and we think this world is a strange and dark place you know the, the tsunami a few years ago on boxing day that killed so many people in the indian ocean um that wasn't anybody's fault it couldn't be blamed on either the, the chinese government the american government or a nuclear explosion it wasn't any of those a tectonic plate has just got to do what a tectonic plate's got to do mm-hmm. and we see in romans that sense that the creation is still out of joint it's waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay mm-hmm. now the key thing about romans 8 is What's the church doing in all of this? Is the church sitting on the sidelines, looking at the world in a mess, a moral mess, an ecological mess, whatever, and saying, oh, well, we at least have got our act together. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're right, God's, yes. We're God's people, we're all right. That's Absolutely right. not. The answer is no. The church is to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. And the way God shoves us into doing that is that we pick up the pain on our own radar screens so that just as one example at the moment the whole world is in pain politically sociologically but not least for instance in terms of the role and identity and behavior of men and women of gender and sexuality and so on where should the church be well it would be nice if we got our ethics together and i and others work for that but the fact that many bits of the church are themselves in pain struggling with some of these issues doesn't mean that we've taken a horrible wrong turning it may mean that we We are actually holding on to a place where the world is in pain, in prayer. And then the key thing, where is God in that process? Mm. Is God sitting over against us saying, wish you folk could get your act together? The answer is no. By the Spirit, God is present within the groaning of the church, within the groaning of the world. And that is good news. When the world is in pain, God is there. How is God in there? By praying with those inarticulate groanings within the praying church. To me, that is an agenda for Christian living, Mm. to be in prayer at the place where the world is in pain. The former Bishop of Durham, he lives in Scotland today, Dr. N.T. Wright. We've had him on the program before, and I'm thankful you were able to join us for this encouraging discussion. He'll join us again tomorrow to talk more about this significant doctrine of the Christian faith. You're listening to Haven Today, and I'm Charles Morris in a program called The Empty Tomb. Before we have to go, I'd like to send you Dr. Wright's documentary called Resurrection. I think you'll enjoy watching this epic film. It's almost like taking a vacation that some of us have missed the last few years. It was shot on location in Israel, Greece, and England. But more importantly, the film will help you better understand what the Bible teaches about the resurrection. Your faith will be bolstered that Christ indeed is alive today. And you can share this DVD with others. In fact, please do that as well to help them trust in our risen Lord. So I'd like to send you the resurrection DVD with our thanks for your gift to this resurrection outreach of Jesus here on Haven Today. You can also call and make a gift for resurrection or for Ukrainian relief at 800-65-HAVEN, 800-65-HAVEN. 
And please don't forget, $50 feeds a family of five for a week. Why don't you pray about how much you can give to support refugees in and around Ukraine? The situation, as you know, is dire. But our friends at Mission Eurasia are on the ground handing out food as well as hope in Jesus Christ. 100% of your gifts will go directly to those in need. I'm Charles Morris. Thanks so much for joining me. Come back again tomorrow when again we'll share together this great story that's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries, inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. Wait, you eat that? It might sound strange, but it's good. I wouldn't like it. Unless you try it, you haven't really lived. The beginning of that conversation sounding familiar, right? If they would just taste it, they'd love it. But then comes the catch. You haven't lived. I imagine this was sort of how the conversation with Jesus in John 6 went. He was talking about bread. Then he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. Then he described himself as the living bread. That might sound strange, but this is life. Unless we eat, we have no life. We eat by faith, and by faith that bread redeems our souls. Get closer to Jesus daily. Visit getanchor.com.